Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on March 9th, 2020. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... One thing about cosmos, my favorite possible world that we imagine is 2039. And so Cosmos ultimately tries to convey that dream. That's Andrian. She's an Emmy and Peabody Award-winning science writer, producer, and director. She co-wrote the original Cosmos series with her late husband, Carl Sagan. And she's the creator, producer, and writer of The New Cosmos. The second season, called Cosmos Possible Worlds, premieres tonight on the National Geographic Channel. She's also the author of the companion book to the series. Drian visited Scientific American recently and spoke with our space editor, Lee Billings, and me. You'll hear her mention Brannon Braga. He's also a producer and director on the series. She talks about Contact. That's the book she and Sagan wrote that got turned into the Jodie Foster movie. And she talks about the Voyager records. Those are the two golden records on the Voyager spacecraft that launched in 1977 and include examples of Earth's music, art, and science to inform any intelligent aliens who might happen on them someday. And now, mostly Lee Billings and a little bit of me talking with Andrian. What exactly is, is in store for this the sequel, the latest installment? This new season contains a really hopeful vision of the future. That's what inspired me. It's a meditation, actually, on a remarkable quote from Einstein, which I encountered late night online. And, uh, you know, I've looked in his biographies. There's no reference to it. But he actually opened the 1939 New York World's Fair. I will paraphrase, but he was saying that science will not fulfill its mission the way art already has until its inner meaning penetrates into the consciousness of the people. And so for me, writing this season, conceptualizing it, and then writing it with Brandon Braga uh, was a kind of an attempt to find out what Einstein was talking about. What is that inner meaning of science that we want to share with everyone? I immediately, when I saw the quote, I immediately recognized that that was the initial, original mission of Cosmos, was to bring that inner meaning to everyone. And that always will be. So this this new season, of course, is in the shadow of climate change and the challenges that we are not facing up to. I feel like I'm a member of an Aztec civilization or an ancient Roman civilization that simply cannot awaken to the challenges that threaten to destroy it. And how do you, as uh, Kafka said, how do you take an ax to that frozen sea inside us and awaken people? Well, from my point of view, one of the ways to awaken them is to give us a dream of what the future actually could be if we were to use our science and high technology with wisdom and foresight and begin to think in the timescales of science, not the next balance sheet, the next quarter, the next election, but a thousand years from now, what will it be like? So again, and I hope this isn't too long-winded an answer, but... um, you know, yes, we have stories to tell of scientists that I'm pretty sure you've never heard of, 
scientists who have been ignored by history, but who have met the challenges of their time. And some of them have even been willing to pay the ultimate price in defense of a future they knew they would never see. How do we evoke that spirit in our fellow humans so that we're all willing to do something much easier than what they did in the interest of our grandchildren and theirs? Now, we don't want to spoil the whole series too much, uh, but, but would you be able to maybe tell us just one one story that, that you found that was particularly interesting? Well, one of the stories that we tell is of Alexander Shargai. Ring a bell? No. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I went in search of who was the first scientist who tumbled to the gravitational assist. This is the backbone of our exploration of our solar system and, of course, Voyager's trip uh, into interstellar space. So I kept looking and looking. And there were people who realized, you know, um, in, in the early 70s, that Voyager could do this grand tour because of the gravitational assist. But of course, we were using the gravitational assist long before that. And I found this guy named Born Alexander Shargai, who um, born at the turn of the 20th century, who uh, lived in just terrible hardship in the Ukraine. When he was five, his mother had been dragged away by the Tsar's police because she was uh, involved in political demonstrations. And he'd been left alone in this hovel uh, with his father's physics books. And he was drafted into the Tsar's army to fight against the Bolsheviks. So when the Bolsheviks won, he was in terrible trouble with them, couldn't get a job. But uh, in the First World War, in a trench, He wrote a book which was addressed to you who shall send rockets to the moon and the planets and beyond. And the first line was, be not afraid. There is no theoretical obstacle to space travel. And he was the first person not only to imagine the gravitational assist, but he was also the first person to imagine the Apollo mission, including having a orbiter sending three cosmonauts in orbit around the moon with a lander. And I don't know if you know about the early history of Apollo, but during the early days, John Halbert and the other engineers were struggling with how to do direct approach to the moon, which meant taking a giant rocket, which had escape velocity, sending it to the lunar surface, landing it on the lunar surface, taking off from the lunar surface and returning safely to Earth. It was an unworkable approach. And um, Alexander Shargai produced this book. He couldn't get a publisher. He had to self-publish it because one of the problems was it was very expensive because there were so many diagrams. And um, he uh, actually uh, came in contact with the founders of what would later become the Soviet space program, and they wanted him. But he had changed his name to Kondratayuk. He had taken the name of a man who died of, I think, typhus in order to escape his his white Russian associations. He was terrified that he would be 
arrested if anyone knew that he was really Alexander Shargai. And so uh, he published this book. There was a small scientific group that knew about what he was doing. He was uh, put into a sharashka, which was a prison for scientists and engineers. And there he was asked to design the largest grain elevator that had ever been built, but there was a metal shortage, and so he could only use a single nail. And um, he did. He built one that was the largest. It was called the Mastodon, or whatever the Russian word for Mastodon is. It stood for 60 years. But he was arrested immediately after it was built because they said he was a traitor to the state who would build a giant grain elevator and only use one nail. He must have been interested in sabotage. That was his life. It was just one hardship after another. Finally, he enlisted or he was drafted in the Second World War as a radio operator. He disappeared on a night in the 1940s fighting the Germans, and no one knows what happened to him. So pages fall from the calendar, years go by, and two European scientists bring his um, manuscript, which they have hand-translated, to John Heilbert. Now, uh, and this was just in time for Apollo, NASA says that, no, they didn't see Kondratuk's manuscript until 1964. And so um, it couldn't have been, you know, and Apollo was being planned earlier. But the things that make me doubt that with enormous respect for NASA and love for NASA as I was alive then during the Cold War. And I know there was no way that NASA would admit that the uh, Apollo plan came from Russia. That, you know, it's one of, it's the mythic achievement in human history. And so that's one thing that makes me doubt it. And another thing that makes me doubt it is this, is when Neil Armstrong returned from the moon a year after, he made a visit to the Soviet Union. He made a pilgrimage to Shark Eye slash Kondratuk's home in the Ukraine and went back to Moscow and persuaded the Soviet Union to recognize him for the giant that he was. So he, I really do believe that he deserves this credit. And uh, in, we tell his story, the drama of his life. That's amazing. Yeah. And and so the thrust of this latest uh, latest iteration of Cosmos, it's called Possible Worlds. And you're talking about Someone who, from literally from the trenches, the most despairing situation you can almost imagine. But he was able to envision this this brighter future and, and plan it in detail. Um, what are some of the possible worlds or possible futures that that the series highlights or the book highlights? Well, we make some of the lost worlds of our own history, of which we know very little. For instance, the great uh, the great city of Mohenjo-Daro, in what is now. Pakistan, thousands of years ago, had indoor plumbing and a kind of viable, glorious civilization. We bring that back to life. We go to the possible worlds on exoplanets, of course. That's the most obvious application. But also the planets of our own solar system as well. And we explore them. But also the inner worlds. For instance, we're fascinated by the concept of the connectome the human brain. And the idea that at some point, just as we've mapped the human genome, we could map a connectome, all the thoughts, associations, memories, 
ideas of a single human, all those ever-branching ramifications inside your own brain. Maybe send that on an interstellar probe, um, as well as the world that is beneath our feet, the mycelium, the idea that beneath all of us is this underground network that is a cooperative enterprise of many different kingdoms of life. It's the inner life of a bee. It's the democratic society of the bees, Uh, a a continuity of 100 million years in which there is a kind of consensus arrived at through waggle dancing. Here we are, you know, thinking about the receipt of an extraterrestrial message, a message from another civilization, and living in the midst of a society of a society that communicates in symbolic language, and not even realizing that until the last hundred years, and now beginning to look more deeply at the way that trees and bees and other life forms on this planet communicate with each other. You know, you you said yourself that you're not a scientist, right. that you're a hunter-gatherer That's of me. stories. Right. And I think that comes out in, in talking to you and in watching and reading your output. Uh, I guess I've always kind of wondered why why exactly did you go down this path? Um, did you – I mean, you clearly have a very strong interest in science. And, and maybe being a hunter-gatherer of stories gives you a broader, more expansive view. And maybe that's a benefit. But I'd like to delve into that a little bit. I first – You know, I was one of those people, so many people, including I think a large number of women, are derailed from a career in science by some humiliation or um, intimidation in girlhood. And that's what happened to me, the story of how I was derailed from a pathway, a life pathway in science and mathematics actually is memorialized in contact in the book. And it's Eleanor Arroway's story of her religious experience with Pi in junior high school. That exact thing happened to me. It's verbatim my life. So I was derailed from that scientific career and went into history and literature, and but was hungry for some kind of spiritual um, doctrine that I could embrace wholeheartedly without lying to myself. And um, I found that when I first started reading in history about the pre-Socratic philosophers. And I fell in love with Heraclitus and Democritus and um, Hippocrates and these first thinkers who were not willing to use God as an explanation for why things are the way they are. And and that's and then I met Carl. And of course what a what a what a feast of Uh, communication and oneness that was because we were both motivated by this idea that even though we knew you could never have any absolute truth, the idea that science was this constant, this winnowing machine that was constantly chucking out the stuff that that turns out not to be true, that we're we're human, we're going to deceive ourselves, we're going to deceive each other. But there's the idea that there's an error-correcting mechanism that could at least get you a little bit of truth, was so exciting to me. And that's been my lifelong passion. And I was so lucky to be with Carl for 20 years because we were both precisely on exactly the same wavelength. And um, and so, yes, I'm not a scientist. I have 
vast areas of ignorance. And uh, it's really easy to plumb my depths when it comes to science. There's no problem. But the power of stories is, I think they're the most most powerful. And of course, this is what myth is, is when there's truth in them. So as it's been famously said by others, you know, a myth is a story that never was, but always is. And that's how I feel about these stories, is I'm looking for those stories that have a truth in them, because I know that the more truth they have in them, the greater number of people are going to resonate with them. Now, could you could you uh, briefly tell us that story, that pie story? Yes, it, it, I was. Uh, I grew up in Queens, New York, and I was in math class, junior high school, and we got to pie, and I felt myself suddenly starting to shake and to shiver with this excitement, and I raised my hand, and up to that time, I'd been an excellent student, and she was writing three point one four blah 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 on the board, and I was raising my hand waving you know, like an idiot. And um, she called on me. And I said, is this true? This formula, is it true for every circle in the whole universe? And she turned around and looked at me. And I could still see the wizened, crow-like look on her face. And she said, don't ask stupid questions. And I burst into tears, ran out of the room, and ran home. And didn't want to go back to school. But I was on to something. And that was the basis. I, you know, I told Carl that story very early in our relationship. We wrote the treatment for contact in 1979. We weren't even really finished with Cosmos when we wrote it. And that was the inspiration for Eleanor Arroway and for the entire plot of the book was this moment of humiliation for me in junior high school. When the constructive response would have been, yes, and isn't that marvelous and amazing? Yes, she was a teacher. Shouldn't she have just been like, yes, think about it. Just think about it. What can that mean? No. It was was, don't ask stupid questions. And I I was never a, a serious science or math student after that until I was done with school. I, I'm a college dropout. I left school. And that was part of it was this feeling of, you know, I couldn't find a home there intellectually. And But I was a voracious reader. And uh, so I was happier when I was out of school and working and reading, uh, you know, on my own time. That's a great story. Thank you. I, I was hoping maybe we could talk just a little bit about how it was working with your late husband, Carl, uh, and, and in particular focusing on uh, the things that each of you brought, uh, because I, I feel like in all of, all of uh, the work that you've done together, so often uh, people just, they, they mostly think of, of Carl Sagan and, and, and they don't see, they don't maybe appreciate the, the way that two minds came together to make these things. Sometimes more than two minds. Could you talk yes, a little about that? Yes, it was sometimes more than two minds. We had great collaborator in Steven Soder, and I still uh, work with Steve and deeply fond of him. Uh, it was the greatest thing. In the beginning, you know, I'm not, I'm not painting an idyllic, unrealistic picture of two human beings who, you know, don't have rough edges, who don't get annoyed, who don't get impatient. All of that happened. But it was like we could not get enough time together. Writing together was a love offering. 
we did a lot of our writing in Ithaca. I would sit in my office indoors and look through this big picture window at Carl, who would sit outside 10 months of the year until it was like freezing. I actually once saw a deer come up and just look over his shoulder, and he was so intent on his work. He didn't notice, and you know, it wasn't before cell phones and cameras everywhere and stuff like that, so I've always regretted not taking that picture. But we would write all day long, and then uh, we would exchange our manuscripts. And those times when he would burst out laughing or he would look at me and do this gesture, this funny old-fashioned gesture of like doffing an imaginary hat, I my heart would soar. And we were together seven days a week. I mean, the only time that we were, he would be away would be he would go to teach his class at Cornell. Sometimes I would actually go and watch and audit it. But he would be, you know, away for two hours in the day. And we still, we'd saved up so many things we wanted to tell each other. We were together for 20 years until his death. And um, it just, I, I mean, I know people tend to idealize relationships in retrospect. I know that especially, you know, 20 something years later, 20, almost 22 years later, you look back and you just think everything was great. Um, you know, there were occasionally socks on the floor. You know, there were things like that. But everyone who knew me, my lifelong girlfriends, they called me Miss Bliss. because And, and many people, and one of my closest friends said it was a tyranny to live in the in proximity to a love that was that great. One of the things I always think is that now, I think there are more people who love Carl now than at any previous time, especially because we find ourselves in such a tragic, dark, frightening moment in history. And I think more people are hungry for someone with that kind of voice that's not self-serving, that is about the the long-term future, is about the reality of nature, is open, is someone who's speaking to communicate, to awaken. And um, all I can say is if any of you knew him the way I knew him, to hear that laugh, to, to have seen the way, you know, this man was deathly ill for the last two years of his life. He had three bone marrow transplants. He wrote two books during those bone marrow transplants. And I remember after he died, one of his physicians said, you know, I've never had a patient who could actually finish reading a book during a bone marrow transplant. And he wrote Billions and Billions in Demon Haunted World while he was being tortured in, like, you know, really tortured physically. He's just the greatest person I've ever known, more alive, more awake, kinder, more patient than anyone I've ever known in my whole life. Thank you for that. You know, you mentioned that we're in a dark and somewhat yeah. tragic time. And, and one thing that I I love about uh, your work and your work with Carl and, and independently is how you do have this longer-term perspective, the sense that you are not just speaking uh, to people now – but you're speaking to people and who knows other sentient beings in the future. You were obviously the uh, the creative director for the uh, the Voyager Interstellar uh, message project, which sent the two golden records out yes. to the stars, uh, mm-hmm. Voyager One and Voyager Two. 
And at that time, the big boogeyman, the big threat that everyone was talking about was nuclear war, nuclear right. holocaust. That's still a threat today, of course. Yes. But, but of course, we live in a different world now. There, there are new situations, new threats, new promises. Uh, when you think about the message, the contents that were sent out on those golden records, uh, if you could do something similar today, what do you think you, – how, how would it be different? What would you send out? I mean you mentioned, for instance, the Connectome earlier. Maybe right. we just upload someone's brain onto it. I don't know. Right, right. More Chuck Berry. More – send more Chuck Berry. That's what – I'm so proud of that. And Blind Willie Johnson. I'm so proud of the Voyager record and um, some of the wrongs that it righted. Uh, you know, I am – we gave it everything we had. The Voyager record. That was a protean effort on the part of all of us involved with it. And, you know, I, when people ask me, what would you send now? I don't know. You know, I'd, I'd have to give it the same degree of thought that I gave it back then. And uh, have I, I feel like I've made my Voyager record and now it's up to this new gener- generation to make theirs. Um, I think, actually, if we could send a connectome to some of the other people on Earth, because I that's one of the visions of Cosmos, is that if we had, let's say we, we could do the connectome of an eagle soaring high above the Andes, you know, riding the thermals from the valleys. And, you know, if we could know what that was like, if we could actually know what the person we hate most and fear most, what their connect-up is really like. I feel like we'd have a better shot at it. We'd have uh, – there's something in the new cosmos which is called the Arch of Experience where you can stand beneath it and you can feel those things of, you know, and it's imaginary and we we definitely stipulate that. But that's what, what is called for here is um, – you know, there's a Yiddish word, Rachmanis, which I don't know if there exists in other languages, but it's exactly that compassion that comes from your ability to imagine what the experience of someone else is. And uh, I wish, you know, that we could do that. We could give that to uh, some of the people who are climate deniers, who are polluters who are endangering our future, maybe we could have them imagine what it's going to be like when their grandchildren experience hardships that we've never had to endure. And so I just want to add one thing about Cosmos. My favorite possible world that we imagine is 2039. And we don't have a dream of a great future. And so Cosmos ultimately tries to convey what that dream could be because Carl Sagan was taken to that same World's Fair where Einstein said that, made that amazing statement about science penetrating into the public consciousness. He was five years old. That set the course of his whole life because he realized that there was such a thing as the future and the only way you could get to it was science. Then um, Neil deGrasse Tyson and I both went to the 1964 World's Fair. In Neil's case, his father was a city official, and so they named one of the cars on the monorail the Tyson Comet. And so that was a big influence 
on him and for me. I was I'm older than Neil. I was 15. And my brother worked there, so I went there. And I was living in Queens, so I went there constantly. And I went to the world of tomorrow and, you know, all of these magnificent exhibits that were so optimistic. Even the architecture looked like the buildings were going to take off into flight. And um, we don't have anything like that. Our dreams of the future, perhaps realistically, are dystopic. And so what I wanted to do was create a believable dream of the future, which is episode 13 of Cosmos, in which we go to 39 World's Fair, the six, you know, the 39 with its art deco, sepia, gorgeousness, to the 64 with its Kodachrome, futuristic optimism. We're going to the moon, you know, and then to the 2039 World's Fair. And what I'm most proud of is uh, a new colossus in New York Harbor. And uh, it consists of the carbon dioxide that's been redeemed from the atmosphere has been turned into calcium carbonate, into a new colossus, like the Statue of Liberty, only it's the tree of life with all the different species of life. And I know the tree has become, you know, it's an anastomosis in various places, I know that. But so this is a very, this is not literally a tree, but a kind of modern futuristic tree. And that's my dream, is that human ambition will be directed to making this planet and the astonishing diversity of life that it, it supports our priority. That's my dream. That's the possible world, ultimately, that all of Cosmos is driving to. Do you still have hope? I have tremendous hope because, you know, one of the things I write about in the book, and it goes back to junior high, and that is, who among us hasn't been a hopeless mess in adolescence? Well, our species, our civilization is adolescent. Our experience with high technology is we're in our technological adolescence, and um, knowing that gives me hope. You know, sometimes when I think about the deep history of Earth, uh, the deep time, or you know, even just the history of, of hominids and, and of life, or the vastness of the universe around us, right? Uh, a lot of people go to that and they and they see it as a form of a kind of escapism, where where they just think, "Well, I'm so little and." Nothing matters, and so who cares about what's happening today or tomorrow or yesterday because we're just little specks of insignificance in this huge universe. The question might be, for people who have that feeling, who maybe feel like there's nothing they can do to elicit positive change, to have this brighter future, futures you're talking about, is there anything that they can do to take away, to, to, to feel like what, – what should people do if they feel lost and insignificant in this universe, and they, mm. but they believe huh. in a positive future? How can they contribute to that? Get involved, organize, you know, support the organizations and the candidates who are going to make change. Become one of those people. That's what you have to do. Yes, you know, we may be little guys, but we, as we wrote in Cosmos, we ask big questions. And, you know, the significance comes, the meaning comes from how deeply we're willing to look at our reality and then instead of just laying on the couch to get up and say, okay, well, 
want to know as much about this place as I possibly can. For me, science is one of those rare occasions for human self-esteem because it's precisely because it is a kind of mechanism that says, I don't want to lie to myself. I know what a liar I am. I know what liars we all are. We're primates. This is typical. So let's create a system where no matter how much we may want to believe something, if it's not true, we'll come to know that over time. That's it. It's like, I just think we have to face, you know, what what happiness, what what self-respect can we have unless we face reality and embrace it, you know? And so the universe and love, you can only get at those things if you're willing to open your eyes and see clearly. And that's what we have to do. We have to slap ourselves awake out of this stupor and say, this is not acceptable. And to find the constructive long-term means to change what we have to change as soon as possible. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where we're bringing you the latest news and insights about coronavirus. And follow us on Twitter, where you get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thank you.